It's only rock and roll podcast. I'm your host, Don DiMuccio. And yeah, yeah, I can admit it's been a while since we last saw each other. And you know I would have been here if I could, but that 900 hours of court-mandated community service wasn't going to do itself, you know. Before we get into it, I just want to remind you that if you like the show and want us to keep the assembly line going for another year, you need do little more than to subscribe to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, or wherever your mama likes to take a podcast. What I'm saying, bitch. I'm sorry. Legal warned me not to do that. When you think of the most celebrated record producers of the rock era, names like George Martin, Phil Spector, Barry Gordy, or Rick Rubin jump to mind. But none have had a hand in creating iconic singles and albums in all seven decades like today's guests. He may be best known for capturing the glam sound of Mark Boland and T-Rex, as well as cultivating the ever-changing musical motifs of David Bowie. But that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to a career defined succinctly by the very title of his newly released 77-track box set, called, appropriately enough, produced by Tony Visconti. Get it on, bang a gong, get it on, 
of rock and roll's truly great record producers today's guest takes a backseat to no one his groundbreaking work on david bowie's second studio album jump-started that career and began a string of producing credits with bowie including 11 studio albums like young americans and larger right up to bowie's final release black star in 2016 additionally he would produce 10 studio albums for mark bowen and t-rex as well as working with artists like the boomtown rats thin lizzy u2 the moody blues and many more and to underscore that point, he has just released a four-CD career retrospective box set called Produced by Tony Visconti, which features some of the most iconic songs of the past six decades. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Grammy Award winner and Brooklyn's favorite son, Tony Visconti. Good oh, afternoon, Tony. Good afternoon. Thank you for that wonderful uh, introduction. Well, it's all very true, and uh, what a career. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and congratulations on that box set. Talk about how that idea started and how it came to fruition. I was approached by Demon Records to do this box set. And uh, Dan Walton, a young man, when I met him in person, I didn't realize he was such a young guy. He was like in his 20s. I mm. thought he was a, an old veteran like me. But he had a really keen knowledge of my, my past work, and he dug up some really great gems that I had almost forgotten about. Then towards the finalization of the selections, I added my own input. I thought he kind of missed out some of the ones that I considered to be iconic recordings, and uh, he added them to the box set. I mean, 77 songs is quite a lot, but it just barely scratches the surface of what I've done in almost six decades. Yeah, you know, it's funny. One of the ones that you missed, I thought, was uh, your very first single, Long Hair. 
Yeah, well, I'm embarrassed about that, so I'm happy it's not on there. Oh, come on. I mean, <laughs> was that like a regional hit in the East Coast? I think it was a hit in a diner somewhere up in Rockland County. <laughs> Again, this uh, box set certainly not your first solo release. I was actually listening to uh, your 77 album, Visconti's Inventory. Yeah. Well, you run the gambit of genres on that thing. Doo-wop to disco. There's no Visconti sound, is there? Because your influences are so varied. Well, you know, my daughter pointed out that there is a Visconti sound, but I won't go into what she said that was. She was right. Uh, what My sound is the sound of the artist sounding the best way they can sound. And I analyze with whom I'm working with, and I ask them questions. I, I, I ask them at the beginning, what do you want? What do you expect of this? I write it all down, and then I, I proceed to give the artist what they want, which is opposed to what sometimes the labels want. Mm-hmm. I consider the artist's vision first. Uh, I know the labels do a great job on promotion and manufacturing the records and all that stuff, but with, without a good relationship between myself and the artist, it's not going to really happen. It has to be, we have to be solid. Right. The artist needs a best friend. You find that the label gives you more freedom nowadays or less freedom in terms of how you want to approach a project? Oh, I think the labels are much more open now. They're not so manipulative. Um, it, it's really great. You know, I've had no problems in recent years, and especially with Demon, with this box set, you know, they had their choices and I had mine, and we reached a great compromise. It wasn't dictatorial, you know, dictatorial. Sure. You know, as timing would have it, while we're taping this interview, there's been a mini flurry of new releases by the two bands that arguably define the rock era, uh, namely the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. I'd be crazy not to take advantage of asking you what you thought about first, now and then, and secondly, the new Stones album, Hackney Diamonds. Uh, you know, I can't say anything about now and then without being crucified. But um, I, I think it's, I don't know, I, I, don't, I can do without it, although it's a very sweet melody. Mm. Uh, I have a friend called Seth Reagan, uh, who I've, I've just posted his version, just the acoustic guitar and himself singing it on uh, Facebook. And it's so sweet. You know, he really brought out the tenderness and the sadness of the song. Yeah. Whereas what we heard from, you know, Paul McCartney and company is, to me, it sounds Frankenstein. Uh, it's, it's too, it's put together too patch-like. It's right. Like, it, I, I, I love the song and I, I've heard it years ago and, uh, but, you know, people do what they want to do. It's it's up to, it's their prerogative. They can do what they want to do. And you'll always get mixed feelings about things like resurrecting these songs. And, you know, it, it's almost people don't like to turn their, the people who died into ghosts. Right. There's a, there's a feeling like that sometimes amongst fans. But, uh, you know, so I'm, I've got mixed feelings about it myself. I'm glad to hear it, the entire song again. They didn't do a bad job at all. I, I had objection with the string arrangements. I think I could have done a better job. I've worked with Paul McCartney on Band on the Run. Uh, he's got my phone number. <laughs> but <laughs> that, that didn't happen. And what about the Stones? I know you had an interesting story uh, regarding their uh, secret warm-up gig in New York City a couple of weeks back. Well, actually, it was such a laborious gig to attend. It was like a steamy hot nightclub. Questlove was playing. Uh, he, he was doing his, a great DJ job. And I was absolutely fascinated with, with his crossfades and his spinning and uh, everything he was doing. But it was so friggin' loud. I was like, my hair was pinned back. Mm. And uh, I couldn't, my, my date and I, we couldn't leave that spot because there was no seating, no reserved seating or anything like that. And the place was crowded by the time 
when it was approaching the Rolling Stone, it suddenly got very, very crowded. I was even afraid to go and speak to a friend on the other side of the room without losing my place. Right. So in the end, I didn't stay for the Stones. You know, I had enough. I had enough of loud volume. By the way, Questlove and I have made peace of over this. We're fine. We're good. <laughs> We're absolutely good. But uh, I, I just had to leave. I couldn't stay till the end. I couldn't stay till the Stones came on. And then I heard that they only played about four songs. So yeah, oh, jeez. I haven't heard the album yet. I've heard, you know, there's a lot of conflicting opinions about the album. But <laughs> I love the Stones. You know, I, I'm sure I'll like most of it. The use of AI. You know, it's all over the place now. People are talking. Somebody said, hey, listen, we got this track that Mark Boland didn't finish. We'd like you to finish it, use some technology. to." Would you accept that job or would you say leave it alone? Um, I, I don't really understand how AI does a better job than a human being who's very smart. Like you could give the parameters, put those parameters into AI, what made Get It On Bangagong a, a hit record. But... The thing that's really going to revive it is a completely new opinion, a completely fresh look at it, whereas AI is going to manufacture bits that sound like it. But AI, don't forget, is, is just a computer program. It's not a human brain. Right. The, the human brain is the best computer ever invented so far. I don't think machines are going to take over. Not in my time, for sure. Thank God. Now to say it like a Brooklyn. Thank God. Thank God. Exactly. <laughs> I'm Rhode Island, so next best thing. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of Brooklyn, how would you describe your upbringing in Brooklyn in the 50s and uh, 60s? You must have been surrounded by music. Oh, it was fabulous. Yeah, I was surrounded by music. My father let me use his very expensive hi-fi set to play my records. Uh, he bought a little tape recorder that we had in the house. He wanted to just practice his accordion and play it back and help him play it, be a better accordion player. But I used it for making like rock and roll records. I had a hallway in my parents' house that had a great reverb in it. So I used to stick the microphone in the hallway and sing and play my guitar and try to make that reverb that I heard on the recordings that, that I was sure. buying, you know, the, not the records that were made in the late 50s and early 60s. Right. And uh, then my friends on the street were like kind of Italian-American kids. We used to play stickball, street games, you know, with chalk on the pavement and all that. And you have to run out of the way when the cars came speeding down the street and all that. It was a dangerous life. Also, I used to live 10 miles from Coney Island, a very famous uh, beach that we had. It, it was our Brooklyn beach. But it was 10 miles. And I used to go on my bicycle and not tell my mother. So I would just go out at 10 in the morning and come back at 5 in the evening. And she said, uh, where have you been? I went, oh, I was just cycling all over the neighborhood. <laughs> if I told her I went to Coney Island, I would be grounded. My dad would ground me. <laughs> but it was a fun upbringing. Great music. Good friends on the street. I wasn't really too good at school, but I was lucky that my parents saw that I was going to be kind of a protege, and, and, and they put me in with a guitar teacher at age 11 who got me straight on everything. He really turned me into a really good guitarist. His name is Leon Block, wrote some great guitar books that you could still download or buy. And uh, after three years, he said, well, I've taught you everything I can. He goes, it's up to you now to do what you want with it. You know, he kind of gave me his blessings. So I was very lucky. Very lucky. I had great parents, great guitar teacher. And Brooklyn, I would highly recommend, is a great place to grow up. I mean, it, it's got its faults, but great place to grow up. You, it was only a, a token ride on the subway away from Manhattan. You could get into Times Square in about 50 minutes from where I grew up. And that was exciting to go to places like that. 
When did you start doing live gigs? I know you were a bass player. I played guitar and bass in some bands. And, you know, like when I was a kid, I I played church dances. There was a parish called St. Bernadette's. And I played almost every weekend in a band. And, you know, we used to play songs and the kids would dance on the dance floor and all that. But I finally got a publishing deal. I'm going to fast rewind. I don't want to tell the whole story. And when I was handing in my songs, my publisher finally said to me, Tony, I don't like your song. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm finished. This is the end of my career. But he quickly retaliated with, but I love your demos. So he said, I'm going to take you off the songwriting roster and I'm going to make you the house record producer. So that changed my life. And that stopped doing live gigs because record production is a full time job. I met a guy from England, my future mentor, Danny Cordell, of course, yeah. who I worked with him. And in New York City, I saved one of his sessions from disaster. And uh, he hired me to, to join him in London. So, Tell me about that session. What happened? Well, he was like a, an overkill producer. He, he wouldn't give up until he squeezed every ounce of blood out of everybody. To, to make a perfect record production. So he had done this recording of Georgie Fame singing a song called, I think, Because I Love You and I Always Will. That's it. Because I Love You and I Always Will. And he did it in England with the top session musicians. And he felt like if he goes to America, he'll work with the top musicians in New York and it'll be an even better production. So I met him at the water cooler in my publisher's office. We were thirsty at the same time. So uh, over a cup of water, he asked me what I was doing there. And I said, I'm the house record producer. And he said, you are my American cousin. I'm the house record producer in the uh, sister organization over in London. So he told me about his session that he was going to record for Georgie Fame. And I begged to see the charts, uh, you know, the arrangements, the music arrangements. And he said, we don't have any charts. I, I go, well, who's playing this? He said, Clark Terry's on trumpet. Brooks Arthur is the record producer, and he's also a bass player. And he mentioned a few other names. And I said, those are the top musicians, Denny. I said, if you ask Clark Terry to write out the chart, which he has to do, the band has to read off some piece of paper, then it's going to cost you a lot of money. I said, how do you do it in London? And then he said, oh, we just hire the studio all day and have the musicians there all day. <laughs> and we roll a few joints. <laughs> and we finally get what we want maybe by 11 o'clock at night. Wow. So I said, Denny, you're going to be crucified if you ask Clark Terry to write the charts, et cetera, et cetera. So he played the demo for me. And I said, I could do you a one-page lead sheet, you know, with the chord changes on it, the bars where the drummer has to play a fill. I won't bother writing in a fill, but I'm sure he'll come up with something good. And I could write those two trumpet parts that you're going to ask Clark Terry to learn, which will take him about an hour to learn and write out. Mm. I'll do it right now. I can do that now. I read and write music. So he was very impressed. We, we did a, a Xerox copy of my one sheet, ran down the road to fill Ramon studio, which was on 48th Street, I believe, in Manhattan. It was called A&R Studios. Phil was the R. And uh, we put, we handed out the sheets. Clark Terry started to play immediately. He saw the, the notes and he started to play it. The second trumpet player joined in. And then he was looking at me like I was a miracle worker at that point. I bet. <laughs> I was just doing what I was trained to do, that's all. And uh, so the session went without a hitch. We got the track done within half an hour, 
And uh, I said to Denny, you know, you want to keep recording? And I think we've nailed it. He goes, yeah, I think we've nailed it too. Wow. So uh, he, he offered me the job on the spot to fly over to London, which I actually not on the spot, but he, he suggested that I work with him. He said he's going to look into other people first. But two weeks later, I got a phone call from London, my first transatlantic phone call ever. <laughs> Honestly, that was a trip because really? it sounded weird. It really, they didn't have the technology they yeah. have now. Yeah. Now you get a phone call from London. It sounds like the person's down the street from you. You know, it's so clear. But not in those days. No. It sounded like he was underwater, something like that. So he said, how quickly can you get here? And I said, probably in a month. I have a few loose ends to tie up, but uh, I'll gladly join you. And, and that's how I started working with him. And that's where my education really began, because he taught me things I would never be capable of doing, which is mainly how to coerce a great performance out of a singer or a, or a musician. Yeah. And I taught him about arranging and mixing, uh, which I was already doing back in New York, because he wanted to know how to mix, but he couldn't. And he, and he didn't know guitar chords or notes. He had a hard time communicating to musicians. And, you know, he would just tell me something and I would interpret it for him to the musicians sitting in front of us who might be Manfred Mann, people like that we, we, we worked with initially. And he was just very, very happy about the situation. He, he gave me my biggest break. I'm always indebted to him. Now, I don't know where in the chronology this falls, but I heard an interesting anecdote about how you almost got drafted to Vietnam. Oh, well, that was, let's see, I turned 21, and um, I got that letter from Uncle Sam. <laughs> that could have ended a career before it ever began. It could have ended my life. Uh, yeah, yeah, It was Vietnam, exactly. and uh, I didn't want to go. I didn't know how I was getting out of this, but, you know, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to admit this because uh, I'm a perfect example of someone who's recovered from alcohol abuse and, and drug abuse. That at the time I was flirting with heroin. I was chipping, as they said back yeah. in the day. You know, yeah. I, I wasn't a full fledged addict, although there was one week where I got hooked, you know, and I managed to get off it again because we had a doctor in Manhattan who would prescribe methadone as a, a way of getting off it. So I used methadone a couple of times. Uh, but I went into the examination when you get drafted. The first thing you do is strip down to your underwear and you stand in line with about 150 young men your own age shaking like a leaf because it was cold in this induction center mm. and then the first thing that happens is your blood gets taken a sample of your blood gets taken and you get back in the line waiting for the rest of the exam and uh, within about 10 or 15 minutes later i was called out of the line and brought to a psychiatrist to i had to see a psychiatrist and he said uh, your blood contained opiates how did it get there and I said, I put it in there. <laughs> I, I knew this was going to get me out. My friend said, if you show up positive with opiate in your blood system, you're not going to go into that war. And I have to tell you, you know, people said, oh, that was a cowardly thing to do. It was not a cowardly thing to do because we weren't invaded by Vietnam. Right. We were invading them. It's different. If it was World War II or World War Three, and America was being invaded... I would go into the war as a young soldier. Of course. Of course I would. There's no question about it. I would defend my country. But defending Vietnam was a no-brainer. You know, why? And, and we heard about already the records of men who died. Young men my age, about 30,000 had already died at the hands of the Viet Cong. Right. I'm just not going to go there. But I never had a, a, a heroin problem after that. That was the end of it. You know, it served its purpose in yeah, my life. it's a miracle <laughs> in a way. It is. 
I hate when people judge things that happened usually before they were born by today's standards. Yeah. They do that with musicians a lot. They'll pick an old John Lennon interview and say, oh, I can't believe he said this. He said it in 1971. If he was 83 now, he may not be thinking that way. So, No, Don, you live and you learn, and you have the right to change your own opinion. Uh, when you learn more about the subject, you might have been critical about, you know, right, in pri right. prior years, you know. But uh, I don't know. People are funny, especially with with social media. People are your judge and jury sometimes. It's it's ridiculous. Absolutely. With a little help from my friends, Joe Cocker, that's on the box set. What was your role in that song? It was a small role, but by that time, I was Denny's sidekick. He wanted me on all his recording sessions, you know, for that reason, just in case he had something to communicate and I might be able to communicate it better. I was there at a lot of the Joe Cocker sessions, not all of them. Joe Cocker to him was very special, and he used me more sparingly for that. He wanted to take 100% credit for that. But I was very helpful on the backing tracks. I was around for those, and I would make suggestions, and it would, to him first, you know, I wouldn't override him. Yeah. And then I was lucky enough to be there on the vocal session when Joe sang that iconic vocal. And it was weird because in those days, I think we didn't have more than A-track machines. So that was recorded on A-track, and Denny even went to the States with the master tape, and there was some 12-track machines already in use, and he tried to record extra guitar parts and stuff on the 12 tracks machines. Yeah. And that kind of degraded that master tape a little bit. Nevertheless, he came back to London. We had one track left and Joe had to sing it until Denny was happy. And unlike today, where on Pro Tools, you have an infinite amount of tracks. We had just one track. So if Joe sang his guts out, and Denny didn't like it, and he had to sing it again. We had to erase Joe's previous take. Yeah. Then when we got around to the final take, Joe was crying. He was in tears. He says, I can't sing it any better. Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I can't do it. I'm going crazy. So Denny did a weird thing. Instead of the mic being in front of Joe's face, he raised it about a foot above his head. And that, that big scream, like in the middle when the music stops and... Uh yeah. Joe does that big scream. Joe had his head thrown back and he screamed up towards that mic. He gave it his last big try and Denny was finally happy. But, you know, he left Joe like a pile of jelly <laughs> afterwards. And Joe, I think, took days to recover from that recording session. Denny went back to the States to mix it. And he, he, he kept sending up many mixes back, you know, from Atlanta, all over Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles. And his partner, David Platts, was playing all these mixes to me. He goes, what do you make of it, Tony? I said, well, they all sound very different, but I think it's getting worse because I had already mixed this with Denny. I did the first mix of it with a little help from my friends yeah. and Denny loved it, but he was so insecure that he had to try out all these different people. He must've spent a fortune in, in studio work uh, and airfare. Yeah, he flew first class, of course. <laughs> and so David Platt said, we can't wait any longer. This is a hit record. He goes, can you play that mix you did, the first one? And I, I played it to him. He goes, he goes, that's the best mix. It never sounded better than that. It was, it was a real simple mix. That's the one I did, and that's the one that got released. Well, that's not a small role, Tony. That's, no. a, that's a big role. <laughs> I know. Well, that led to bigger things, of yeah. course. You know, I proved myself to him and 
He knew it. I didn't do it behind his back. I, I did it with the cooperation of his partner, his 50% partner, who overrode. I think he, he could override Denny. He had the power to do that. But uh, it turned out to be a massive hit. Joe is very, very pleased with it. Everyone loved it in the end. I think you'll agree. I've said it before. That is the one Beatles cover song that arguably might be better than the original. You're right. It's one of the few. One of the few, yeah. How long after that did you meet David Bowie? Oh, I met him before. I met David Bowie at the end of 67. I arrived in April, waffled around for a bit, and because um, Denny and I shared the same publishing company, I met David Platts as well. And one day he called me into his office and he said, we have an artist signed to the label. And this is late 1967. He said, and uh, I'd like to have your opinion on him. So he played David's DRAM record, his first release, The World of David Bowie, I think right. it was called. Yeah. And I was very amused by it because every track sounded completely different. It sounded like different artists. He did that comedy song, The Laughing Gnome, with double speed tape, where he made his voice into a, 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 a pixie voice, kind of. A, then he sang like When I Live My Dream. He had this big Broadway ballad voice. Then he had like a, a kind of a pop song on there. So I said to David Platt, I said, he's all over the place. David Platt says, you're right. He is all over the place. What would you do? And I said, I would take the thing he does best, which it sounds to me like it's either the Broadway thing or it's like he could make great pop records. He could get a hit record in the top 10, you know, easily with that voice and with the right song. And he said, I think you're right. That's how I feel. He goes, would you like to meet him? And I go, yes, of course I would. So David Platts had a little room behind his, his main office, just for like a little conference room, very, very intimate room, very small room. And he said, come with me. So he opened the double doors. And in that room was David Bowie, young David Bowie, smiling like the Cheshire Cat. Because he, this was a setup. <laughs> ah. He knew it. He knew he was going to meet me. Yeah. And uh, he was hoping he would meet me. And he was... At that t stage of his life, he was in awe of Americans. He thought Americans made the best music. And um, oh, it was just great to see him and to meet him. And uh, to cut another long story short, we spent the, the entire rest of the day together. We, we were kicked out of the offices at 6 p.m. We ended up on King's Road, and there was a film playing called A Knife in the Water by Robin Polanski. We had already expressed our love of scratchy black and white foreign films. And uh, we bought two tickets and we, we entered, ended the night about, you know, 11 or close to midnight. He went back to Bromley to where he lived with his parents. And I went back to my flat in Earl's Court. So it was a great first meeting. And we stayed friends till that day, till the rest of his life. I want to stay with that first album a little bit because you produced the album, but not the track Space Oddity. That one was Gus Dudgeon, I believe. Gus Dudgeon, yeah. I, I didn't like this track. I, I said to David, you're writing all these great songs, and this is a great song. I said, but you're taking advantage of the, the current news that an astronaut's in outer space now. You know, it's something that's never been done before, mm. and you're taking advantage of this current event and I don't know you like that. You know, I I know you as a great songwriter. So I said, Gus Dudgeon, who works down the hall from me, I said, he loves you. And he had already worked with David on DRAM Records. He worked on that World of David Bowie record. He would love to do this with you. And I highly recommend him. So David said, okay, if you don't mind, I'll do that. So he went in the studio with Gus and Paul Buckmaster and 
lo and behold, like a, a week or two later, I, I heard the results and I was flabbergasted. I never, never thought it would turn out that good. Yeah. And um, it was a blessing that he got Gus instead of me because that put him on the map. I don't know if I would have done as good a job. Gus, at that point, had more experience than I did as a producer and a recording engineer. I was a music guy. I was a music arranger. That's that's what I did. But yet, ironically, some 45 years later, you remixed the whole album in uh, that 360 audio. Yeah. How do you go about setting up a mix like that? Uh, we had surround sound rooms in New York when I did that, you know, okay. and they, we still do. So I did that on a, an Atmos studio uh, with no headphones whatsoever. Really? Because I really? think the only way to hear it is through headphones. No, really, uh, no. no. I've never in taken a, advantage of that. I've never had an Atmos setup. An Atmos setup has about 24 speakers in the room, probably more. They have them in the ceiling. They have them above your line of sight, at your line of sight, and they're in the floor as well. The subwoofers are surrounding you in the floor. And... Uh, you don't get like specific uh, 10 speakers like Sony Surround did. Sony did Sony 360. The Atmos is far more complicated. And they say it folds down into headphones. And I have heard it on headphones. And I was always very disappointed. It sounds nothing like being in an Atmos room. But who can afford that? Nobody can. I mean, maybe 10 millionaires in the world can set up an Atmos studio in their home. Oh. It's, not, it's not a living room thing. <laughs> well, talk about producing the album for Bowie. Okay, so after he did Space Oddity, I didn't think we'd work together again. And he, he said, oh, no, I got that out of the way. Now you and I could start going back to the album to do all the rest of the songs. So that's what I did, Unwashed and Slightly Dazed and, and Occasional Dream, which I played bass on. Kind of started working with uh, a guy called John Cambridge, who who is Woody Woodmansey's friend. And it's a kind of all-over-the-place album. You know, it's not, not very consistent. But it was it was good. It sold really really well as, with Space Oddity as the lead off track, and uh, I was amazed that he showed his true friendship in that he took me back even after he had a hit record with another producer. He took me back to finish it. He liked our relationship, so that that was just absolutely amazing. Uh, I mean, it, it was a fairly easy album to make. It didn't take a long time. You mentioned the relationship. I interviewed Earl Slick not long ago, and he talked about how back then, the Bowie that people saw, obviously not the man once you get to know him. Were you guys tight all the way straight through? Oh, I had a I had an apartment in Earl's Court where I might have said earlier, where he and Mark Bowling used to come on. I had soiree nights. About once a week, I'd, I'd invite a lot of friends over, a lot of them uh, like minor musician celebrities and just friends in general. I had an electric guitar, an acoustic guitar, and a bass guitar, and, a, and one amplifier, and we'd all jam. And on those nights, David would jam with Mark Bolin. I, I mean, I wish I recorded these, but I didn't even know they were going to be iconic artists yet. Right. Uh, but we had so much fun. And then when David got a house in uh, Beckenham, uh, Kent, Haddon Hall, uh, I was still living at that Earl's Court flat, and he said, we, we have a lot of room here. Why don't you move in here with... We have kind of, I've got an arts lab down at the pub, the Three Tons. We have a, which I had already attended as a guest artist and also accompanying him. And we took a look at it. My girlfriend Liz and I took a look at it. We thought it was a great situation. We'd have our own huge bedroom. And then we had the communal dining room and a picture gallery that was, you had to climb up a series of steps to walk around this gallery. We had a big garden. It was just a fantastic situation. So now we were housemates, David and I. 
and we went through a lot of dramas, you know. We had some people, like some nights there, if my apartment wasn't crowded enough, this house often had up to 40 people there on a weekend, you know, at nighttime. And there were parties galore. We had great, great, great time. They weren't rowdy. David, usually, you know, his friends were quite brilliant, quite smart people. George Underwood, mm-hmm. his artist friend, was amongst us. And and local people who were young authors, they were writing books, musicians. It, it was such a great situation to be there with him. And we were like friends, really good friends. The only reason I moved out is it did get crazy. And uh, we had, uh, around this time, David and Angie were, were inviting guests around to spend the night with them, how shall we put it politely. Yeah. And then sometimes these guests would just open our door and assume that it was a free-for-all, the door to our bedroom. Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I never participated in these nights. That was David and Angie's thing. So Liz and I decided this is enough. We, this, there's no privacy anymore. And we, we moved just down the road so I could be close to him. So I, I moved about a mile away in a, a little, a quaint little village called Penge, P-E-N-G-E. And we made a joke was, you know, that's where penguins come from. <laughs> but anyway, I lived in Penge and I used to go to David's house daily to rehearse for making the album, The Man Who Sold the World. We, Woody and Mick Ronson and David and I, we were rehearsing in the old wine cellar in that house in Haddon Hall. So it was a great situation. We were friends. We were colleagues and uh, certainly good friends, not, not enemies at, at, in the least. Do you remember the last time you spoke to him? I spoke to David, uh, oh, maybe about two and a half weeks before he passed on the telephone. Yeah. And I know he had told you a little bit in advance what the situation was. Yep, he did. Yeah, everyone in the band knew about it because David was coming in the wearing a, he, his eyebrows fell out. I knew exactly what that meant before he even told me. You sure. Know, that's chemotherapy. Yeah. And uh, he was very optimistic after it came out and he made the Black Star video. You know, I've got to tell you, he, he was just so thrilled with it. And at one point when we were doing the vocals at my studio in New York, uh, it was just him, he and myself. Uh, I said to him, you know, David, we've been working together since 1967 and you could have worked with anyone else and you have worked with other producers. But the last four albums... You've worked with me. I said, I'm very grateful. I mean, I don't know why, but I'm very grateful that you choose to work with me, like especially on these these last four albums. And he just sat there and he, he had a book in his lap, which he was reading, and he just smiled, just a very broad smile, no verbal answer. So that was really amazing to have that relationship right up to the end. Sure. And, and then when he stopped coming to the studio, he did phone me about two weeks before he died. And he was very upbeat. He said he was going to get through it. Uh, he was going to go back into therapy afterwards, after Christmas. And, uh, well, you know the rest. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You pre-recorded a lovely speech for Mark Bolin and T-Rex's induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I'm, I'm sorry, I felt that that induction was so long overdue at that point that it was almost insulting. I mean, how many bands invent a genre and then come to define that genre in so many ways? Do you think because they didn't break as big in the U.S. as they did in the U.K., you think that has something to do with? Well, at the time, they both started with me, basically around 1971, 72, with making the, the really good, powerful records like Mark changed the name of the group to T-Rex, although I had T-Rex on my calendar when we were doing Tyrannosaurus Rex, but right. 
And he told me I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't abbreviate it. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. There's a story there, too. So David and he were like, uh, David was starting his uh, hunky-dory phase and then eventually Ziggy Stardust. And I saw them both as big rising stars. And I I stayed with Mark until a a certain point, an album called Zinc Alloy. Then he was going a bit mad. He, He felt he had to compete with David. And he was not saying nice things about David in the press, whereas David would always say nice things about Mark in the press. Yeah. I felt like I almost had to take sides. You know, I didn't know what to do. But then Mark started being really very, very arrogant towards me, taking me for granted, uh, didn't want to pay me royalties anymore. He wanted to give me something like 10,000 pounds a year retainer. But I made far more money on royalties, which he, he resented. He resented the fact that I gave him his big break. I made 10 albums, 10, 10 albums with him, eh, no, eight, eight albums with him. And now he wants to demote me. <laughs> you know, and and take away my income when I just had a newborn baby boy. You know, yeah. I needed income more than ever. So I I, I gave up. I left after Zinc Alloy and um, said, you know, you know how to do it yourself, produce yourself, and that's that's the way Mark and I ended up. Hmm. Had we lived though, uh, he spoke to David privately. David took him to see my studio down in Soho, and Mark said, I'd like to work down here someday. I love this place that, that Tony built. He knew it was my studio. Yeah. So I took that as a sign that it was possible Mark would have contacted me to work down in that studio with me. It was it was a sign that he was softening up and uh well, you know, he had a, you know about four years of flops. You know, he never really had a big hit record after Zingalo. He had a, a minor hit, I would say. I forget what the name of the uh, tri- the album. Well, was. like in the UK, things like Dandy in the Underworld, and you know, he scored minor hits there. But do you think a lot of that must have been due to addiction? You know, you start losing the plot sometimes when you're on the magic white powder. You know, yeah, the, the Peruvian marching powder. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, he wasn't alone. Everyone was doing that in the seventies. But, yeah. but but some people knew when to stop. It, it was true that it wasn't addictive like heroin was, but it, it was hard to stop because of the ego boost it gave people. Right. And I heard this from women at the time. Like, they felt like the cocaine made them feel like they had the power of a man uh, when they, they took it. They were, women were doing copious amounts of cocaine as, as well as the men, their, their boyfriends, etc. Interesting. It was. It is interesting. It's one hell of a drug. It's, uh, <laughs> what's his name said that? Oh, Rick James. <laughs> Rick James, yeah. It's true. Not that I would know. Working with Mark in the studio, you mentioned once that he would give it a performance. Like he would show up in stage clothes. And yeah. Talk a little bit about how he would approach a session. He, uh, you know, and like everyone who came to the studio in jeans and sweatshirts in those days, and then on stage, they put on the glitter and glamour. But Mark was a hundred percent rock star in his mind, and in his, well, he was, and in his lifestyle, he wore stage clothes when he'd go to a restaurant or get into his limo, and hopefully he was seen by some people. He wouldn't be seen wearing street clothes, and uh, this was like really the great thing about him. So in the recording studio, he would come dressed in his stage clothes, his lovely chartreuse blazer with the musical symbols all over it. That was one of his favorites. Right. And he'd do Chuck Berry moves, like strut, like on one leg, you know, around the floor and jump up in the air and scream and just like he was on stage. And I'm telling you, that worked because those albums like Electric Warrior and The Slider and Tanks really sounds like he's having a good time. Like he's got thousands of people watching him. 
So it worked for him, it worked for the members of the band, and it worked for the people in the control room. These were very, very exciting records to make. And I don't think we ever did more than seven takes on any song. And quite often we stopped after three takes because there was no point in going any further. And if Mark made a little mistake, or maybe if Bill made a mistake, say he missed a drum beat, Mark said, we don't have to re-record it, don't worry, I'll just put a loud guitar chord over that beat and I'll cover it up. <laughs> I mean, he was, it was amazing. The way he thought was absolutely incredible. He wasn't a perfectionist, but he had another weird method of getting perfection. A lot of bands have trouble, like The Who come to mind, where they always said, you know, you never heard The Who unless you saw them live. Yeah. The records don't do them justice. With T-Rex, it all sounds like a performance. It really does, because it was. Well, after that experience, I listened to other bands, and one band that I did uh, was called Osibisa, the African rock band. Okay. And they had a problem. I started out setting up the studio with uh, putting the amp in the cabinet and everybody, the drums behind a booth and all that. And they said, we can't play like this. When we play on the stage, like at Ronnie Scott's, I'm standing next to the trumpet player. He's standing next to the bass player. The drummer is right behind us. I said, okay, I've got it because I already had this experience with T-Rex. I, I just opened the studio to make it like a big stage for them, and it worked with them too. And I'm willing to do that with any artist. I, I don't believe, I, in fact, I do believe in leakage. I think leakage is a good thing. But this thing where you have to isolate all the instruments to prevent leakage, I think, yes, it's, it works for some things, but it doesn't always work. Right. You know, especially like with vocals. I mean, you don't want that bleeding into the, the overheads of the drums. But there is something to be said about a little bit of the guitar bleeding into the overheads. I saw you mixing, I think, Jeepster, and you were talking a little bit about some of the happy accidents that happened in the studio that maybe today would be, you know, we got to get that off. Well, well you it, kept it all in. Yeah, because like today, people are adding distortion where there was none in the first place just to make make a record sound cool. Right. Right. In those days, you would hear a little bit of the guitar in the drum tracks. But it was always Mark's session guitar, the one he played on the session. That was a keeper. It, it was never, ever replaced. That would be the guitar on the left in the mixes. And then he'd overdub it. He would uh, track a, a second guitar that would be on the right. So I didn't care if there was guitar leakage on the drum overheads. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be on the track anyway. If it was a completely different guitar and it did leak, that would be another story. But that never happens in our case. And the other thing, like, uh, he did two vocals. He always used to love to double track. So he had one clean vocal, and then he did a second vocal, and unbeknownst to us, the preamp on the Ampex tape recorder was broken. It was like it gave a fuzzy, distorted sound. And that's the mic we used for its, the second vocal track. We we blended it in with his clean vocal track, and it is the sound of today. You know, when you hear people with that little bit of distortion on their track, which is a cool hip thing now. Yep. So we got it serendipitously, you know, by means of a broken preamp. Right. And also, it, there was a flutter on that track as a result. There was something really messed up with that channel. And Mark stomps his boots at the beginning of the song, and in the middle of the song, he stomps his, his uh, Cuban heel boots, and it has a flutter on those boots. And that was recorded on that broken track. I remember it was track two on the machine. So we used it, the flutter and all that. Instead of replacing it, we would make a big deal of these these happy accidents. That's fantastic. I think the instinct today is to be too clean, too sterile. One of the yeah. things I don't like about the new Beatle track, you know, it just sounds like too compressed, too modern. Not compressed yeah. in a cool way, but... 
No, it's not. It's, I, I call that track, it's been Frankenstein. Yeah. Too many body parts that were right. sewn together. Right, right. It could have been a lot simpler and not so doctored up. Speaking of the Beatles, you worked with three of them, and you did that amazing orchestral bridge between the two intro parts of Band on the Run. How was that presented to you as a job? It was great fun. Uh, as, as you know, McCartney produced my wife, Mary Hopkin, right. at the time. So we were friends. I knew McCartney. Mary knew him. Everything was really hunky-dory between us. And uh, he invited me over to his house in St. John's Wood. First of all, it started with a phone call, and he said, I like the T-Rex tracks that you've produced. He goes, did you write those strings for the T-Rex tracks? Like he's talking about Cosmic Dancer. Yeah. And get it on. I said, yes, I did. He goes, can you read and write music? And I said, yes, I can. He said, well, I've recorded this song. And he told me the background in Nigeria, and he said, uh, I want some string writing on it, and I, I like, you know, I like that simple kind of strings, very tasty strings that you've written. And I said, well, thank you very much. And, he, and this was like um, a, a Monday. <laughs> and he says, could you come over? Uh, no, no, this was, this was a Sunday. Anyway, he said, can you come over my house in St. John's Wood, and we can go through this. I've got a piano, and uh, so I did. And I took Mary with me because she was friends with Paul and Linda. So Mary and Linda were off in the distance chatting on the couch. And uh, Paul and I were at the piano and he played little bits of Band on the Run on this little Phillips uh, cassette player. And he had a second cassette player and he played the backing track from Band on the Run and he'd sing a part over it. Like goes, I want the strings to do this, like da 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 da. He'd sing something and the brass to do this. And I have. That cassette, I had to return to him. Uh, he wouldn't let me keep it. Jeez. So anyway, I took it home and I said, when do you want, when is the session? He goes, I want it in two days. <laughs> okay. Wow. And it was, you know, it was a good nine, nine to ten arrangements on there. Some were complicated, like Drink to My Health, the Picasso song. That was a big deal. That was a big Motown style arrangement, which yeah. he didn't dictate. He says, do your thing on this. That was the one where I did my thing. But in Jet, he had that line, you know, da, 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 da. Right. He, wa he wanted that on saxes. And I wrote all these things out, which made the session, rather than dictation to them, it, it made the session flow like, I think it took three hours to do all those orchestral things. Uh, because because I'm organized, you know. That's it. it. It was organized. Yeah. Sure, sure. It was a fun day. Fun and that goes day. back to what you were talking about earlier with uh, Danny Cordell, how rather than wasting time in the studio, you did it all very fast. You knew how to, that's the word I'm looking for, maximize your time. Yeah, be efficient. Efficient, that's the word. And you don't wear people out. Unlike Phil Spector, who would be in it to death. <laughs> I know. <laughs> now, when John Lennon did Cross the Universe on Young Americans, were you present for those sessions? No, I wish I was. I met John at a soiree at David's hotel suite at the Hotel Pierre in Manhattan. And they uh, had met a couple of nights before in a restaurant or something like that. And they talked about writing together and performing together and all that. So we got on really great. David was very shy about talking to John. John was with his girlfriend, May Pang. She wasn't talking to anybody. And I, I said to John, I said, well, look, I've, I've got about 100 questions to ask you. I'm a big Beatles fan. He says, go ahead. <laughs> you know, there's nothing else going on. So I asked him everything I could think of. And, you know, it kind of petered out. But I had I had his attention for quite a long time, easily half an hour. Yeah. And then David was on the floor making, he was just sketching. He was just drawing on big uh, sketch pad. And John said, hey, can you tear us a couple of sheets off of that sketch pad? 
And he said, oh, certainly, yes. So I gave John a few sheets of paper and a, a charcoal. And then John says, I'm going to do a portrait of you. And David said, oh, I'll do a portrait of you. So this was really fun. So they started furiously scratching out portraits of each other on, on charcoal. Oh, I, I wish I had the nerve to ask John to do a portrait of me, but I didn't. So that's how they broke the ice. And they finally, after about an hour of me being there, they finally spoke to each other. And we had also Neil Aspinall there, who was the famous Beatles roadie yep. and uh, assistant. So it was a nice evening. That's that's how it all came about. That's but really I cool. but when Dave when David and John did across the universe, I wasn't there. I was not invited to that. Do you have something you wish you could have done differently today? I guess it's uh, a way of saying any regrets. No, you know, I, I, in recent years, I've had the benefit of uh, remixing Low, which I thought was a bad experience back in the day. Mm. And David heard the first five tracks during the making of Black Star. He, I had a lot of free time to do that. And he gave it the green light, as they say. So uh, it happened to me with a couple of other albums, too. I've had the opportunity to go back and remix. Now, I leave the listener a choice. Some people say it's sacrilege to remix a classic album, but it isn't. You always have the, the classic mix as well. Right. You, you could, you could, there's something good about both, you know, and you don't have to be so pedantic about it. So really, there's no more regrets. I'm very happy. I'm very pleased with what went down in my life. And I'm very pleased that I still have the energy and the acute brain that still works well. Currently, my hands are in three projects right at the moment, which I really can't tell you who they are because they're secrets. Trade secrets. <laughs> <laughs> A huge thank you to Tony Visconti for being so generous with his time today. His new box set, produced by Tony Visconti, is out now and can be purchased on Amazon. Links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode of the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Do you remember Regatha's It's such a lovely song. I've heard a rumor from ground control. Oh no, don't say it's true. They got a message from the action man. I'm happy, hope you're happy too. I've loved all of needed love. Saw the details fall away. The shrieking when nothing is giving, just pictures of jam girls and synthesis. And I ain't got no money, and I ain't got no hands. Something is But I'm hoping to kick because glad it is glowing, 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 Ashes to ash and fun to fuck it. We know Major Tom's a junkie Strung out in heaven's mind Hitting an all-time low
Stuck out 